I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we're going to talk about globalization. Is it dead? Is it changing? What's the deal? All on this episode of The Trade Guys. Trade Guys, there's an article in the Wall Street Journal, Globalization Isn't Dead, But It's Changing, which is gathering a lot of buzz. I thought we might chop it up on that. Um, What's the deal? Why is, you know, there's been a lot of talk about globalization, whether it's dead, different, or still very much alive. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think the trade guys should take a victory lap because we've been talking about this for a long time. And uh, to our listeners out there, don't read the Wall Street Journal. Just listen to us. Uh, (laughs) We'll uh, we'll read the Wall Street Journal for you. Think think of the savings you'll generate by not having a subscriber. The fact that we're once a week with once a week, three stories and they're every day with 300 shouldn't deter you. No, Um, not at all. But I think what they picked up on is is something that we have commented on before. And I've but I've written about it in my column a number of times. What's going on is, you know, a number of things happening simultaneously. But uh, a lot of companies both in services and in manufacturing, are reassessing risk and they're reassessing economic and political risk. COVID taught them that you could run out of stuff. And if you don't look at your supply chains carefully, they contain choke points, you know, single suppliers of some key element. And if that supplier stops you because that company is in a government that chooses to cut you off, or there's an earthquake or a flood uh, or a monsoon, Climate change is relevant here. All of a sudden, you can't complete your product because you're missing a key element. If you remember the chip shortage, I mean, we still have chip shortages. We had a big one in 2021. And one of the things that that affected was the automobile industry, who was perfectly comfortable making the cars, but they couldn't operate the cars because they were missing a handful of chips that were backed up and unavailable. So companies are reassessing all that. And for companies, what that means is building um, resilience into their supply chain calculations so that in addition to price quality and, and delivery, which are the traditional things you look at when developing the most efficient possible supply chain, you now have to think about essentially kind of a non-economic factor, which is resilience, which is a fancy term for don't put all your eggs in one basket. And so people are beginning to adjust what they're doing in the interest of having more diverse sources of supply. And inevitably, that means, in some cases, if not moving out of China, then developing alternative sources besides China for supply, because China has a history of weaponizing trade, sometimes to whole countries like Australia and Lithuania, and sometimes to specific countries that don't tow their specific political line. So at the same... but. That's what companies are thinking about. And that's going on regardless of what governments do. Governments at the same time are beginning to think about this problem from two other perspectives that are leading to a change in globalization. One is national security. And you hear that a lot in this administration. And you hear a lot about the vulnerabilities that ensue if we become dependent on countries that with whom we don't have good relations for parts and components or critical minerals. 
China being the, the prime example. And now there's a new thought that was exemplified by a speech that Ambassador Tai gave yesterday at Davos, the World Economic Forum's annual big do, where she talked really about a new world economic order and basically said that efficiency is passe. And what efficiency and globalization have brought the world is massive inequality. And workers have not benefited, the big companies have benefited, you've heard this speech before, and that we need to develop a trading system that focuses on inclusivity and more benefits for workers and less for companies. And that means a different approach to trade, and it means a different approach to globalization. And I think what it means is less trade, more barriers, and more making sure, more reshoring, basically. And that is, in some respects, a massive rearrangement from the company perspective, a rearrangement of globalization, a rearrangement of supply chains. But if what Ambassador Tai is going to, is talking about, it, it, it may mean a significant dent in globalization as well and a refocus on domestic production and domestic manufacturing, not just by us, but by other countries. Look, here's the way to think about it. First, this isn't a new story. Measured only in goods trade, World trade is a share of world output, goods trade only, peaked in 2007. So globalization has been stagnant or in retreat when using that very broad measure of trade in goods expressed as a share of world output. Since two, so for 15 years or so, things have been sluggish. And in fact, I recall writing reports about this before there were a trade guys podcast. So Bill's right. This has been around. It's been debated for a while. And let me separate between what's not changing from what is changing. What's, what's not going to change is the technological side of globalization. In other words, container ships uh, were invented by Malcolm McLean in 1956. We're not going to get rid of container ships. We won't, more importantly, we won't forget how we got to the efficiencies of container ships. The information communications technology and the way that modern logistics has translated that into just-in-time deliveries or being able to extend very precise control over processes at a great distance, we're not going to lose that. There's no useful tool that ever ceases to be useful and therefore ceases to exist. So the technology, once we've figured it out, we continue to use it. Three things, though, are changing. One is geopolitics. The geopolitics of the early days in globalization, let's call it late 80s, early 90s, was end of the Cold War. And all the big traders, at that time, the United States, Europe, Japan, were the big traders, they all were in favor of greater economic integration with other markets. So that's where you saw the peak expansion, the agreement, formation of the WTO, all these steps forward. So the geopolitics are very different today, where you basically have the G20 is splitting into, into two in many ways. You have the G7 plus Australia, and then you have the BRICS plus affiliates. And they have different goals. So that's the geopolitics. Second thing that is changing are the domestic politics. The domestic politics of the 90s, as exemplified by President Clinton's administration and his triangulation, where open markets were a good thing, that was the future, and we ought to figure out how to make the best of this thing called globalization. The domestic politics now are leaning toward more industrial policy, more direct intervention, and a lot of borrowing and spending that didn't seem likely in the mid-90s. Third thing that is, is changing is demographics. And both the, and most importantly here, the demographics of China. In 20, 2022, China actually shrank for the first time in total population. So there were more deaths than births in China for the first time, I think, since the 1980s, sometime in the 80s. 
who've been a very long time and China's working population, their working age population has been shrinking for some time now. And that was growing and that was sort of at its peak when globalization really got started and China became the place you could assemble at scale at a low cost. So geopolitics is different. Domestic politics are different. Demographics are different. Technology remains the constant. So make of that what you will. Bill, so as supply chains shift, which countries stand to benefit the most? I think from the U.S. perspective, the short-term winners are going to be Southeast Asia and Mexico, because the trend here is to diversify out of China. Uh, And I say diversify specifically, not everybody's leaving. Some are, but if they're not leaving, they're building alternative facilities somewhere else. So they're diversified. Apple is a prime example of a company that actually led the way into China a long time ago and made its phones there. And even, I think, a year or two ago, has led the parade to Vietnam and is making more of its products now in Vietnam and thinking about, I believe, thinking about going to India. So I think the winners are, immediate winner was Vietnam. People are beginning to say Vietnam has some infrastructure constraints, some limitations. I mean, uh, the the cynical view is Vietnam sort of full because it's taken on a lot of uh, additional manufacturing, additional production. And our deficit with them has gone up accordingly. It's, It's gone up enormously in the last four or five years. So I think people are starting to look elsewhere. And I can tell you that I think every country in the region is thinking about how can we become part of Western supply chains, not just the United States, but also Europe. So think Malaysia, think Thailand, think Indonesia, think the Philippines, and each of which has their own uh, assets and, and liabilities. I think for American companies, there's a lot of interest in Mexico still. It's held back a little bit because the current Mexican government is not as business friendly as as previous Mexican governments. But there's still a lot going on, particularly immediately on the other side of the border. And I think you're going to see more of that. Later on, I think people are going to look at Central America and other places in this hemisphere as uh, potential winners. And then when you think about it from a resource base, think about critical minerals, think about what we're going to need for batteries. I think the big winners there are going to be Canada and Chile because, I mean, lots of people have minerals, but I think the Canadians and the Chileans have a better developed infrastructure for dealing with that. I think you're going to see them. I mean, they don't want to be only uh, an extraction economy. I mean, if you talk to Canadians, they're not that interested in having foreigners come in and just strip out all their minerals and ship them somewhere else. They want to be integrated into the value-added chain and have production there as well. And I think that'll happen, but it means that because they begin with the asset, I think they're, uh, they're both going to be winners as well. Scott? Yes, I think Bill's right from a, at least a U.S. finished product standpoint. I think he's, he's, he's got it right, both in terms of the problems of, of getting to the kind of scale that we have in China and replicating that, but also the, the neighbors who are most likely to benefit. I, I do agree, Mexico is extraordinarily well positioned if they can take advantage of it. Their government has taken a turn toward state direction and import substitution and things that are that are contrary to that. But given that they have the the USMACA agreement in place, they're best positioned to to be the the low cost market of choice. 
If you look at Europe, Europe has some other challenges with globalization. Most importantly, their energy costs. But they also have near neighbors who can fulfill the same functions that a China or an East Asian partner could fill. In their case, Turkey, which has an affiliation agreement with or association agreement, excuse me, with the uh, European Union, kind of functions as their final assembly point. Uh, so a lot of a lot of appliances, a lot of vehicles that are sold in Europe are assembled in Turkey. So there are ways you do this geographically, but like I said, we won't forget how to do this. But once again, your specific partners will depend on the sort of governance qualities within those markets and the geopolitics and the forces that places on all the producers. So if you're if you're betting on Mexico, would you bet on Mexico right now or not bet on Mexico, given what's going on in the government there? I would find a way to bet on the companies who are making cross-border production work. Okay, so you look for which companies are doing the kind of assembly work that has the potential for growth, given what Bill mentioned, the notions of resilience and shifting away from. I tend to look at these things on a firm level and not on a country level because firms are either capable of doing this or they're not. Let me go back to something Scott said, if, if I may, and emphasize that and then elaborate a little bit. As he said, you know, the thing to remember here, the tools of globalization have not gone away. Containers are not going to be uninvented. Globalization was enabled by enormous reductions in cost in uh, communications and transportation and technological advances in communication technology. All that is there. We're not going to uninvent digital transactions. We're not going to uninvent the internet. We're not going to uninvent iPhones. So the tools remain. The question is how they're used and how they're applied. I think the thing that worries me from the standpoint of American policy is that we are we, the United States, are a mature, relatively slow-growth economy. 95% of the world's consumers are outside our country. If you focus just on what's going on here, we're doomed to continue to be a slow-growth economy. Companies here that want to grow have to trade because that's where the market is, and they don't really have any choice about that. If we're going to have a policy that is not focused on expanding trade, but is focused on increasing production in the United States, you have to start asking, where does that lead? We're going to be producing more here. Okay, that's good. That's more jobs here. Where is that stuff going to go? In a market here where, where our birth rate is now below the replacement rate, although we continue to grow because of immigration, you know, who's going to absorb all that production that, that we're talking about? The answer is it's going to have, it really needs to be exported. And if we're not focused on export promotion, if we're not focused on expanding trade, I think we're doomed to much slower growth over the longer term. Bill's right. If you assume that we're going to make it here and sell it there, those products have to be globally competitive. And that's the question that every producer is trying to answer, is how do I deliver a product that is competitive in the market versus consumer alternatives? Yeah, are we good at that at this point? Are United States companies who export, are we good at being competitive right now? We're terrific at the things that our high-tech, high-skill economy produces. Boeing aircraft being the classic export, high-tech export product. But look at machine tools. Look at the kinds of what you need to make other things. That's a place of real American strength. And those machines are, are highly valuable. They're, they're very precise in their operation. They require a ton of R&D behind them. But it's those kinds of products that will definitely find a global market. Yeah, but we've, we've lost a lot of that industry to the Japanese in the 80s. Our strength has been, I think, design, innovation, anything that involves sophisticated technology because we've got the investment to afford that. 
where we've become uncompetitive over the years are, are things where labor costs are a large component of the total production cost. Labor in the United States is not cheap. Right. And it's not going to be cheap. And if anything, in this administration, they're focusing on making it more expensive, which I happen to think is a good thing for workers. But it's not a good thing for global competitiveness in areas like apparel, for example. And we do well in niche markets, things that are fashionable and, and where we have design and which are attractive, not because of how much they cost, but attractive because people want to buy that particular thing. Yes. But for industry as a whole, you know, when I started in the, doing this stuff, working for Senator Hines in, in the 70s, Pennsylvania had a vibrant and a vital footwear industry. We had a lot of companies, small companies in Pennsylvania that made shoes. They're all gone. When I In the 80s, despite everybody thinks of Pennsylvania as a steel state, the largest manufacturing employer in Pennsylvania was apparel. Mm -hmm. And that's all gone, you know, and... Ship has sailed. Right. Now, we still have a services trade surplus and almost always will because of, of software, entertainment, all the things that count as services. Actually. And that's what? 75% of our economy is services. Right. The administration is focusing on, on manufacturing. One of the things that I think I ranted about last week and we need to spend more time on in the future is they want to create all these manufacturing jobs. And I don't think we have the workers to fill them. You know, we already have something like 10 million jobs vacant right now. If you're going to create more that also ones that require some skill, where are the people that are going to do those jobs in an economy that is, is services oriented? So, well, yeah, what's it going to take to get those kind of skilled workers either trained up or imported? Well, companies do a lot of it. And the starting offer of most companies, if you can read, write, compute, and pass the drug test, they'll train you. But... Checking those four boxes is harder than you might think. Really? Yes, sir. Talk to an employer. <laughs> well, so, I mean, this leads to kind of my next question. So we're, we're trying to manufacture more things, including we're trying to manufacture more chips and we're trying to create more chip plants. Like, what is that going to do to our ability to export? Well, I think it will be positive net, but those are very large facilities. There are probably more jobs in the construction of the facility than there are in the ongoing production. I actually don't know. That's that was an interesting one, but, but these are highly mechanized operations. But they're very important partly because of technology that's embedded in what it takes to make the, the leading edge chips, which are now made in places like Taiwan. It raises a really good question. I think most of the controversy lately on that industry because of export controls has focused on the very high end, the stuff that has that we don't want the Chinese to have. And there's not been a lot of discussion about, I don't want to exactly say the low end because it's a very high tech. I think it's called the lagging, the lagging part of the sector, which are the commodity chips, the things that go into cars, for example, and keep your yeah, car Yeah, and operating. like washing machines. Washing and, machines. And refrigerators. Yes, and your, your intelligent refrigerator. These are not small chips. You don't need to make seven nanometer chips to run your refrigerator. You know, these are ones that can go up even 100 nanometers because inside the automobile, size doesn't matter that much at this level. We've really ceded that market a long time ago to Chinese and the Taiwanese and other producers who produce sort of bulk commodity chips. It's not clear to me what the factories that are being built via the Chips Act, what they're going to produce. And it's also not clear to me where demand is going to go. Right now, you've got people simultaneously predicting in the industry shortages and oversupply. So it's not clear to me where things are going to go, what these plants are going to do. Clearly, they're going to be able to recapture 
production. Clearly, the companies have decided that it's economic to build them here and make them here. What the economics of that are five or six years from now, I don't think people have given enough thought to. We probably should have somebody from the industry on the podcast to talk about the economics of it. That would be a, a good get, yes. Good idea, good idea. In the meantime, you know, my refrigerator is really intelligent because it won't let me go in it after 7.30 p.m. I'm not sure if that's the refrigerator or my wife or what, but there's some intelligence going on there. It's good for your health, Andrew. Yeah, it's yeah. better than just putting a padlock on it, which was the old way. Yeah, right. <laughs> Guys, we have a few minutes left, but I just want to ask you again. So is globalization actually dead? Nope, it's just changing and it always will change. Exactly. It's not dead despite some predictions. All right. It's evolving. And Scott's exactly right. It will continue to evolve because the tools are there. And, and the wonderful thing about people, but particularly about what goes on in this country, is people are constantly coming up with better ideas and new things that will move the ball forward. I was having a conversation yesterday about electric vehicles, you know, and there's all this controversy about the EV tax credit and the various requirements for it and who qualifies and who doesn't. And the Europeans are upset. The Japanese are upset. The Koreans are upset. A lot of people are upset. You know, the reality is that probably in three or four years, somebody is going to design and develop an automobile that's competitive without the tax credit. And all this will become irrelevant. And the technology curve keeps growing. And as a result, Globalization, I think, will continue to be with us. It's just going to take different forms. What will be with us, though, is more local development, more nearshoring, I think. This is company-driven. It's not the U.S. government. It's companies deciding that having a single source of parts and components in China is a bad idea. And that's not going to change. I think 10 years from now, you're going to see supply chains that are very different from the ones we've got now. But this is not a tsunami. You know, six months from now, everybody's not going to leave takes a long time to reconfigure. We'll just have to wait and see. You can think of globalization as a specific kind of technological progress. That's really what it is. We're removing barriers to the flow of information, goods, people, and culture. And that takes shape and will continue to happen, no matter the geopolitics in many ways. But what I hope will sustain is the element of exchange with parties not exactly like yourself. So international exchange, mostly because that fuels innovation. There's this wonderful English phrase called the meeting of the minds. It's one of the reasons that trading centers have always been the hubs of innovation, is you're dealing with somebody who has a different background, different ideas, different culture, different way of thinking than you do. And just by running into them and doing business with them, you find out new ways of doing things. And that innovation is, the, is what you really get for the, the trading system that fuels continued globalization. Guys, this has been a great discussion. We were going to talk about some other things today, but we had to stick with globalization. So next week, we'll talk about more of what's happening at Davos. We'll talk about USA, Switzerland on the new drug manufacturing thing. But this was a great discussion. I really appreciate your insights. Thanks, Andrew. See you next week. Got it. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast. <laughs>